we've been for some time now. We're going to be in chapter 9, uh, looking at verses 14 through 29. I think I've decided I'm going to read through verse 32. So uh, we're going to go a little bit further, but we're going to spend most of our time in verses 14 through 29. As we look this morning um, at this, uh, this paradigm, this, this pattern of faith, um, we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see Jesus coming off of the mountain and encountering uh, what is um, a fairly hectic situation, it would appear, from an outsider's perspective looking in. And so um, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're, we're continuously, week after week after week, being introduced um, to the, the suffering servant, right? Our King Jesus, um, who brings about the initiation of God's kingdom in a very different way than people were expecting. The disciples in most recent weeks have been confronted with the the idea that that Christ is um, to go and to suffer, right? To to die, to give his life. Um, And that has been a source of major confusion uh, for them uh, as they continue following Jesus as he goes about his earthly ministry on his way to Jerusalem and Uh, And the cross. And so I think what we see this morning is really interesting in light of what we saw just a few weeks ago, which was Jesus yet again introducing, reinforcing this idea for his closest followers, right, that he was going to die. Right. And this this was, again, a source of major confusion and internal conflict and strife for the disciples that we see referenced through uh, Peter's um, uh, confrontation of Jesus about this issue and then Jesus' response to him. Um, And so we're continuing to be introduced to this idea as the character, the person, the work of Jesus is uh, laid out before us, it's unpacked, and it's it's presented through the Gospel of Mark. So what did we see last week? As we come into this portion of Mark 9, and we're going to see this paradigm of faith, um, what, what do we need to know from our first part, uh, our first, the first part of this uh, chapter, Mark chapter 9? Well, in Mark 9, we see uh, Jesus uh, transfigured on the mountain. All right? We see him transformed on the mountain. His glory from before the foundations of the world displayed before Peter and James and John. We said last week as we, uh, as we began the first portion of this chapter that it is though as the veil is peeled back, right? And for just a moment, right, momentarily, there's a glimpse that is provided at the hope for sinners. Jesus is portrayed in the first part of Mark chapter 9 as the better mediator between God and man and the fulfillment of the prophets, right? The one that the entire Old Testament points toward, the anointed king of God, right? Who would be killed upon a cross, raised to life, and established in glory on high as the rescuer of a people. That's what we saw last week, and it was incredible, right? It was incredible for us here in 2017 observing these events, right? But it was also most uh, certainly incredible for the disciples who were present and witnessed it. And in verses 14 through 29, this morning, we see Jesus coming off of the mountain with his disciples to a scene that is similar to that of Moses in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we see Moses coming off of the mountain following his um, his encounter with the Lord, with God, right? And as he works his way down, he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. Whereas Jesus here in Mark chapter 9 finds his followers defeated by an unclean spirit. 
And so there's a lot of comparison, right? There's a lot of contrast between what we see uh, in the Exodus account and Moses' experience on Mount Sinai and his, uh, his observing the after effects, the passing by of the glory of the Lord and all that the disciples experienced in the transfiguration. And now they're coming down the mountain. Are you guys with me so far? A lot of context. Hang with me, though. It's important. So what is our desire this morning as we work through this portion of Mark chapter 9? What's our aim? We try to set an aim for each week so we can say, all right, here's what we're looking at. Here's where we're going to, right? This would be this this morning, okay? Our aim this morning is to see the work of Christ in the midst of a most tragic and difficult circumstance, right? So let me say that one more time. Our aim this morning begins by seeing the work of Christ in the midst of a most tragic and difficult circumstance. We're going to see this morning Jesus restore life and light to that which has been scarred in order to draw us near to Christ. And so our desire, as we observe all that we see portrayed here in Mark chapter 9, is to draw near to Christ, celebrating the hope of the gospel for sinners living in a broken and fallen world. That's where we're going. That's what we're aiming at. That's our desire. Everyone ready? Awesome. Here we go. Let's go to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And I've decided we're going to read through verse 32. So hang with me. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And so this is as they are coming down off of the mountain where we left Jesus and his disciples last week. As they're coming down, right? They get to the bottom and they find the disciples there. There's a great crowd gathered around him and scribes arguing with them immediately. All of the crowd, when they saw him, verse 15, were greatly amazed, and they what? They ran up to him, and they greeted him. Verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his Uh, his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. And this is incredible. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, this morning for your word. Uh, We do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts um, to see the truth that you are communicating to your people here this morning and that we might in turn seek to apply it appropriately in our life in a way that is most honoring and glorifying to you. That is what gospel application looks like. It is honoring unto you. And so we pray that that would be the reality for our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Two observations that we want to make from the passage uh, this morning. First, we see that creation is broken. That's where we're going to begin. But then we are going to see that Christ restores. And so we're confronted with the reality of broken creation, right? The consequences of of man's rebellion, the fall, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then the restoration that Christ makes available. We see a glimpse of it here in this morning's passage, but man, there is something before us that brings eternal joy and hope to God's people in the midst of the trial and the tribulation that we experience in this world, and that's what we're going to be talking about. But let's begin by understanding creation is broken, and how we see that displayed in verses 14 through 22. Look there with me. First, we see this account Right, this, this scene in which Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. We're going to kind of go verse by verse through this thing and unpack it. Beginning in verse 14. Look there with me. He says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him being Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And so what's going on here? Well, Jesus and the three have made their way back down to the nine at the bottom of the mountain. And they find, as they arrive, their friends being heckled by a group of self-righteous, self-satisfied scribes. Because, as we will see, the disciples had attempted to cast out an unclean spirit from a boy and had failed. And as a result of their failure, this group of scribes were undoubtedly criticizing not only their inability to demonstrate power in this specific scene, but because of their connection to Jesus, we might assume that there is some type of, uh, some type of criticizing or even blasphemy that's taking place as it relates to uh, Jesus. And so as Jesus approaches, we see the crowd 
watching this chaotic scene unfold, take notice and run to him, where he engages them in this super interesting and informative conversation, this dialogue. And we see it in verse 16. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Referencing the scribes that are present, that are creating this most chaotic and most hectic scene. Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him what? Mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so it's it's this terrifying scene, right? It's this truly tragic scene as as a father. Right? With, a, with a young son. I can only imagine how, how heart-wrenching this entire situation and circumstance is. And so this man brings his son to Jesus. Only we know, and we'll reference this in just a moment, that Jesus is on the mountain. And so he says, I asked your disciples to cast it out. Only they were not able to. And so we see that the scribes here remain silent, but we see this man, a father, respond to Jesus' question. Mark tells us that this man has been seeking Jesus, hoping that he would free his son from an unclean spirit. But because Jesus is on the mountain, he goes instead to the disciples in verse 18, and he asks them to cast out this unclean spirit. Now let's, let's engulf ourselves in the midst of this scene for just a moment. Let's understand the, the, the tragedy and the horror that's playing itself out within the life of this family. This is a, a family, right, with a young son who has been oppressed by a spirit who has worked an incredible amount of evil in his life, right? And in the lives of those closest to him, such as his father who is now pleading before the disciples and now Christ, to do something about this this situation, to remedy the circumstance in a way that only Christ clearly is capable of doing. We see in verse 18 that the Spirit seizes the boy. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9, verse 39, the father says that his son screams and he throws himself down. He foams from the mouth and he grinds his teeth. He becomes stiff. And as a result, the boy's body is undoubtedly covered with scars. In addition, the boy can't speak or hear. It tells us in verses 17 and 25. And so here we're provided with some insight. Okay, we're, we're provided with some insight into the motivation of the evil one as he wages war against God's providential plan and purpose. Here we're provided insight into the work of the enemy and that which he seeks to accomplish within the lives of people. Consider the condition. Consider the condition of both the oppressed son here in Mark 9, as well as the man that we see in Mark chapter 5, both bearing the marks of mutilation, both greatly affected by the evil of spirits at work within them, both men created in spite of the evil that now is at work within them in the, what we refer to as, the Bible refers to as the Imago Dei. Now, what does that mean? It means this. It means that people are created in 
God's image, right? And as we look back at Mark chapter uh, 5, and we look here at Mark chapter 9, we see that image bearers of God are under a great amount of, of strain and stress, and they are being impacted greatly by evil works within them. We see God's image, and we see the object of Satan's destructive desire. I love what the commentator Kent Hughes has to say in relation to this specific passage. He says this, that Satan finds ultimate satisfaction in the obscene twisting of lives. We see that here in Mark 9. We saw it in Mark chapter 5, and we see it all the way back in Genesis chapter Three, that the, the, the enemy distorts God's word, right? And he seeks to inflict as much pain as possible on those who are bearing the image of the creator. He goes on to say this, the, the attacks upon this boy serve to show how radical and real the struggle is between the destroyer of life, right, the enemy, spirits that are now at work within the sons of disobedience, and the life giver being Jesus. We see the condition of the world, and we see the brokenness of humanity, and it begins to make a little more clear for us why Peter, in our passage last week, desired to stay on the mountain with Jesus. If you remember, last week, Jesus is there, and he's transfigured. Right? His glory is displayed in a most unique and in a most incredible way. Hang with me. And he's there, and he's there with Moses, right? And he's there with Elijah. He's there with that which represents the the law and the prophets, right? And Christ is the fulfillment. And as Peter observes this most incredible scene, what does he say? He says, man, this is good that we are here. Let's build a couple of tents and let's camp out for a little while. Now, we talked about last week how this speaks towards their misunderstanding of all that Jesus has ultimately come to accomplish, right? Because we know Jesus has already already rejected the, the earthly crown, right, minus the path of difficulty, suffering, and the cross. He's already put that away. He's already rejected that. Here, again, we see Peter saying, man, let's just hang out here. Why? Well, because it's good. Well, what did Peter mean when he said that it's good? It means, right, he meant that what's going on here is, is ideal in comparison with what's going on down there, without even knowing the specifics, of this situation and circumstance as it plays itself out down at the bottom of the mountain, we know Peter is aware, he's observed the brokenness of the world the same way that you and I have, and he says, man, it's much better that we're here instead of down there. Why? Well, Because even though I don't know what's going on down there exactly, I know that it's a mess, and I know that this is a good place to be. At the same time, it ought to make us all the more grateful that Jesus rejected that thought. We we understand a little bit more clearly why Peter might desire to stay at the top of the mountain. Because it's good. Because your glory is displayed here. Because we recognize that we are in the presence of of the Messiah, the, the Christ. And although it doesn't all make sense yet, we are able to grasp that. But, but how thankful does it make you and I that Christ rejects this, this school of thought, this path, and proceeds back down the mountain 
into this scene that we see unfolding below. Why? Why ought we be grateful? Why ought we this morning be thankful that Jesus says, no, we're not hanging out up on the mountain, even though it's good here, but I am taking you back down into the midst of the chaos and the destruction and the sorrow and the brokenness that's playing itself out at the bottom of the mountain. Why? Well, here's the deal, right? What we see happening at the bottom of the mountain here is is not only in this story, but it's a part of our story. Let me tell you what I I mean. We see in our daily lives, we experience all of the things, right, in some form, some fashion that we see displayed through this passage this morning. Sin and struggle, right? Difficulty and pain. Criticism and cynicism, doubt and death. Jesus comes down the mountain because there is this very real, very clear understanding that rescue from all of sin's effects can only be realized through his, get this, atoning death upon the cross. That we can hang out up on the mountain, but if we do, then this particular group are the only ones experiencing the benefits of resting in my glory and experiencing the presence of the Lord. To go back down the mountain is to embrace the chaos. Right, it's to enter into the human condition and the struggle and the brokenness of this world. To remain obedient, right, working his way towards the cross in order that he might, as our substitute, die upon the cross to atone for all of our sins. Right? Jesus is rescuing a people. He is is displaying obedience and faithfulness to God's plan before the foundation of the world to rescue a people. Right to, to undo sin's effects, to make all sad things ultimately untrue. The evil and oppression of Mark 9 and the ultimate wage for our sin and rebellion, death. There's a very clear understanding from Jesus that rescue from that which we see taking place in these verses is remedied and judged and buried through his substitutionary work alone. Are you guys with me? So why are we grateful that Jesus rejects this idea that we continue to hang out on the mountain and leave all of the brokenness at the bottom to its own devices? Well, because of his obedience and because of his faithfulness, right, we see an an end in sight. Right, that, that the sin, uh, uh, the sin's effects on our lives are not ruling and reigning over Christ, but because of His obedience and because of His faithfulness, He rules and reigns over all things. That is incredibly good news for us this morning. Okay, that's incredibly, incredibly good news. Jesus rejects the notion that Peter, James, John, Elijah, and Moses all camp out on the mountain so that He might embrace. Full force, our death, and the brokenness of this world so that we might enjoy his eternal presence as well. Remember, we emphasized that in the first part of Mark chapter 9. The disciples there experiencing the presence of God in a way that Moses could never even have imagined that they are able to do so because, get this, Christ is with them. Christ is with them, and because that is true, they are able to experience something that no one has been able to up until this point. But the good news of the gospel, the gospel says this, 
right? That, that Christ makes a way that all that we see displayed in the first part of Mark chapter 9 might be experienced by broken people through repentance and faith in what Jesus has done. And that's it. Right? That is it. That is the only hope. That is our only hope. That is our only stay. That is our only cause for ultimate, long-lasting, sustaining joy. In Mark 6, we see the disciples successfully casting out demons from those who are oppressed by them. Here, however, we see that they are unsuccessful. Flip back just a few chapters and we see that the disciples are are sent out by the Lord with his power and with his message. And we see them come back and they report about all that had taken place. And so they have, up until this point, successfully participated in God's ministry, right, on earth in a really incredible way. And yet here we see that they are unsuccessful. They fail. They fail in their attempts to cast the demon out of this boy. And so the question that we have to ask, it's a pretty natural question. Right? This is I'm not introducing you guys to something that is radically or revolutionary new, right? It's, just, it's a pretty easy question. Why? Right? Why in Mark 6 are they successful? And yet here in Mark 9, they are unsuccessful. Why have they been successful in the past, but here, after a a week's absence from Jesus, they are unsuccessful in their attempts to free this boy? Well, Jesus explains this a little further in verses 19 through 22. Look there with me. It says in verse 19, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Will you ever learn? Will you ever learn? How long am I to bear with you? Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York, says this in his book, The King's Cross, as it relates to what we see going on here. He says, how arrogant, how arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason They couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and, get this, in themselves. There's a a pride problem, right? There's There's an arrogance problem. There's a disconnect at this point as Jesus has stepped away for a week. And the disciples seem to have forgotten their reliance on him to participate in any of the work that he has called them to. Continues on in verse 19. Jesus says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, get this, this is incredible. Immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, right? There's this prolonged difficulty and suffering for this little boy who's experienced the horrors of all that we see unpacked through these verses for a number of years. Verse 22, and it has often Cast him into fire and into water. Why? What does he say? Well, to destroy him. To destroy him. Again, consider Satan's Satan's work. His his work seeking to destroy the the image of God, the Imago Dei. 
He says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Which brings us to our second observation, that whereas we see the brokenness of creation, and we are talking about it specifically in relation to human existence, but man, all of the earth cries out, right, of the broken condition of things as a result of man's rebellion, right? Everything is corrupt. Everything is, is broken, and everything is in need of being made new. Isn't it good news, then, that in verse 23 through 29, we see that Christ restores, right? That Christ restores. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, I want you to tune in here. I want you to tune in here because... Um, This does not mean certain things. This passage does not mean certain things. That if you believe it, you can achieve it. That if you will it, it'll happen, right? That's not what this passage is saying at all, right? If you pray hard enough, if you believe enough, if you have enough faith, that no matter what sickness you're encountering, that it will uh, be healed, you will be made well, that if you believe or you desire, uh, you know, personal gain and, and financial riches, that that is to be experienced. If you just have enough faith, that's a lot. Okay, it's very simple put. All right, it's it's a it's a lie, and that's not what Jesus is talking about here in verse twenty three. In fact, the man's response leads us into a greater understanding and appreciation for all that Jesus does say here in verse twenty three. Jesus is standing right in front of this desperate father for all of the reasons that we've unpacked already, and he challenges him to believe. He challenges him. To believe. Jesus tells him that his belief, get this, his belief is the condition for his son being healed. It's not a question of whether I can do it, but will you believe? For all things are possible, Jesus says, for the one who believes. So what is Jesus saying? He says this, stay where you are and your son will remain sick. To which we see one of the most You've got to hear this. One of the most beautiful, honest responses in all of Scripture in light of this incredible weight that has now been placed upon this father's shoulders. What does he say? Verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. I believe. But help my unbelief. And so what is he saying here? What does this what does this mean? We see a publicly declared faith. We see a transparent faith. We see an imperfect faith, but we see a real faith. We see a faith that recognizes its weakness. Right? Because he says, I believe, man, I'm here. Right? I've got no other hope. I've got no other option. Like, apart from you intervening in a most miraculous way, I have no hope. And so I believe. I'm here. You're all I got. My chips are all in the center. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, but help my unbelief. And so we can say this. We see this very real faith. And we see a faith that recognizes its weakness. A faith that recognizes its weakness and looks to Christ and pleads for grace 
and for help. And so what does true faith look like? It looks exactly like this, right? It's transparent. It's oftentimes imperfect. It recognizes its weakness, but it looks to Christ and pleads for grace and help. This is true faith. This is what true faith looks like. Right? To, to gaze upon Christ and to, and to cry out, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. It all is resting. You're putting it all on my shoulders and I can't do it. Right? I can't. And so you help me. You help the areas of my life. Perhaps even, right? Perhaps even outside of the realm of my own comprehension at this point. Right? In the, in the depths. Right? And the corners and the crevices of my own heart and mind where I struggle to believe all that we see displayed here, all that you are calling me to do. This guy says, help my unbelief. This is what faith looks like, continuing on in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, man, here we go. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. And he looked at everybody's going, well, that was incredible. Now he's dead. Wonderful. What do we do? What do we do now? But, but that's not the case. Jesus takes him by the hand. He lifts him up. And he... Arose. The boy is more alive now, right, than he has been in some time. <laughs> and yet there is this perception from the outside looking in that he's actually dead. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. But there has been this, this restoration that has taken place. In verses 17 and 18, we see the enemy's attempt to destroy the Imago Dei in this son. In verse 27, we see Jesus restore him. He restores him where the disciples had failed. Where the disciples had failed, Christ is successful. He rebukes and commands the Spirit to leave this boy alone, and it does. And in this moment, we are provided a tad bit of of, of foreshadowing, right, to what Jesus is to accomplish ultimately and finally upon the cross. It reminds me of what we see from Jesus in the wilderness. There, as we go back to to the wilderness experience of Jesus, right, following his baptism, which he has driven out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan for 40 days, we talk about how there we see Christ proving victorious where God's people had historically failed, right, trusting him in the wilderness, Christ fully trusting in the plan and the purpose of the Lord. Here, Here we see the disciples have failed, yet Christ succeeds, and in this moment, he defeats Satan in a very similar way as he does in the wilderness experience. Luke writes in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus gave the boy back to his father, and as a result, what happens? This is great. What does this lead us to? When we observe passages like this from Mark chapter 9, what does this lead us to? Well, it ought to, as we see from Luke 9, lead us into a a position of astonishment at the majesty of God. That's exactly what we see displayed in Luke chapter 9. Jesus gives the boy back to his father, and as a result, all the people are astonished at the majesty of God. Verse 28. How are we doing so far? Is everyone good? Awesome. Let's continue. 
And when he had entered the house, his his disciples asked him privately. Pretty legit question here, right? Having seen their inability, having seen Jesus exercise power in an incredible way and accomplish that which they were unable to, that which they had up until this point been able to accomplish, they asked him, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but Prayer. So here's what we need to see. The, the implicit of verse 19. Right? The implicit of verse 19 is made explicit, it's made clear in verses 28 through 29. The disciples cannot participate in the work of Christ apart from the power of Christ. And in this scene in Mark chapter 9, it would appear as though they are acting independently. That they are not relying on the power that Christ had given to them in Mark chapter 9, or in Mark chapter 6, but now they are instead relying on their own strength and their own devices. Here, Jesus calls them back to humility. He calls them back to humility and recognition of need. You see, and the tendency of the disciples' hearts are the tendencies of our hearts as well. And so let's connect here with what we see going on in the hearts of the disciples in Mark chapter 9. We say, man, they've seen such incredible things. Why would they not rely uh, on the power of Christ? Why would they seek to accomplish these miraculous works within their own devices? Well, consider how you and I live so often times. The disciples fall back into this trap of reverting, reverting back into self-reliance, as so many times do we. And so the question then that we ask then is how do we avoid reverting back into self-reliance, that which we see displayed by the disciples here in Mark 9, that which we display, see displayed in the mirror when we look at it, right? Our tendency to do the same thing. Well, I think it's as simple as this. Consider the cross, right? Consider the cross. And consider this reality, that if we have not and could not save ourselves, how then are we to live in our own strength following God's great work of grace? Well, we don't. We don't live in our own strength. We don't live in our own strength, but instead we rely on the strength of the Spirit that now lives within us. Consider how mission supports this point. Flash forward to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, perhaps a familiar passage for many of you. Christ has, um, has died upon the cross absorbing all of God's wrath and, and justice and judgment upon our sin. He's been buried in the ground. He's risen back to life. He spent some time with his disciples. And then he tells them of the work that they are to accomplish before ascending back to the Father. And he says to them this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel says this. The gospel says that we are not self-reliant, but instead that we are totally reliant on Christ. For what? Well, for, for life and for light and for strength for the work that is before us. You see, Christ has come to restore guilty and broken people. Did you know that? Right, that Christ has come 
to glorify the Father through his restoration of guilty and broken people. He erases our sin. He buys us back by grace and love as the faithful one, perfectly obedient and trusting where we have so often failed, gives himself completely that we might know intimacy with the Father, that we might be forgiven, that we might be adopted, that we might be adopted. And so how do we respond to what we see here in Mark chapter 9? How do we respond? It's so simple. You guys ready for this? Take notes of this. This is helpful. How do we respond? Man, we, we run to Christ. We run to Christ. We emulate that which is seen by the crowd Right? The, the majesty of Jesus, and we run to him. We run to Jesus, and we worship Jesus. We, we pray. Right? We, we are a prayerful people. God's people are a prayerful people. Why? Well, because we are most aware of our need. Right? And if you're not, man, hey, just sit here, right, and consider the brokenness of your own heart and consider your great need. In light of what Christ has done, consider your disobedience and your covenant breaking and how Christ is perfectly (laughs) obedient and keeps perfect covenant and goes to the cross completely and fully fulfilling the plan of God to redeem a people. Consider Christ and then consider who we are. And we are confronted immediately and beautifully with our brokenness, the love of Christ, to call us back unto himself and to save a people. So we are a prayerful people offering thanks to the Lord for the gift of faith and his commitment to continue developing said faith. We ask him to sustain our faith and to what? To strengthen our faith and to glorify himself through it all. Glorify himself through it all. We look to Christ. We look to Christ as our strength for this life, to live mission, to love the difficult, to pursue reconciliation, and to extend forgiveness. Christ perfectly fulfills all of these things. And then he equips his people to begin living this type of life as well. There's a song that we sing often by a band um, called Citizens and Saints. And within the song, there is this line that is incredible. And it says this, If ever I forget my true identity, show me who I am and help me to believe. Right? Show me who I am and, and help me to believe. Help me to understand my brokenness and my need for redemption. Help me to understand the love of God right, that leads sinners into repentance and new life and restoration and the hope of eternity. Right? Because what we see him uh, accomplishing here, what we see him accomplishing here is to be accomplished on a cosmic scale one day. We see brokenness and we see restoration. But did you know? That Christ is coming back for his church. And that when he returns, he is to perfectly restore all things. To recreate it all. For his people, that we might enjoy 
the world as it was to be enjoyed, right? With Christ as the center, as the sun, right? As the glory eternally present with his people there in a real and a tangible way. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's where Jesus is taking us. And so if ever we forget who we are and where we are going, then show us, God, show us who we are. Help us to believe. Show us where we are where we are, where we are going. Show us our need for you. It's our cry. It's, our, it's the cry of our hearts as we conclude our time together. Show us our need for you. And the areas of our life that are in need of being refined. That you, let this be the desire of our hearts. That you, Christ, might be preeminent in our lives. That you might be before all things. That you might rule and reign as our good shepherd, directing our path and our ways. That we might find ultimate joy, get this, and satisfaction in who you are as you have come and you have saved a people. You have given yourself on the cross. You have paid the debt that we could not pay and you have lived the obedience that we are incapable of doing. And in you, we find hope. In you, we find rescue. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our prayer this morning. Let's pray together.